Thank you, Chloe. Thank you for coming this morning. My name is Mike, one of the pastors on staff here at church. It's an honor to be with you this morning. It's, a, it's my honor to be able to spend some time looking at the Word of God with you. I've spent some time this last week studying and praying, preparing some thoughts for this passage. And I, and I just really do think, it seems like if you think of the messaging of Christianity to non-Christian people, they've, they've heard about a Christianity, and they heard about it, and they tried something. They're like, I tried that when I was younger, I tried that, and I didn't get that job, or I, I tried that Christianity, and then my dog got sick, or, or I tried that Christianity, and then and I found out there's hypocrites in church, I found, I tried out Christianity, and they seem like they just won a lot of time, I tried Christianity, they talked about money, I tried Christianity, and it didn't work for me. And as I was studying this passage, and think about this passage, and think about all the different paradigms, what you're thinking, what you've said, as people... I really do think we have been sold a Christianity that doesn't exist biblically. We take American Christianity and we really try to doctor it up and round off the rough edges and take Christianity and package it and distribute it at mass consumption, a politically correct Christianity, a Christianity that like looks good, feels good, plays well with others. Um, there's this Christianity that I think is in American Christianity, especially on YouTube, uh, that is not biblically sound. Um, and I find this passage a jarring, sobering, humbling words of our Savior Jesus, talking about what to expect. So there's no gotcha, no hooks, no, but wait, there's more. There's none of this. I tried this before. He lets you know exactly what to expect as you go along your Christian life. And I found it very sobering and heavy to work through this passage individually. I like to pray and commit this time to the Lord and ask that he would multiply it. If you bow your heads with me. Let's pray and ask God to show up in this passage here and encourage our hearts. Lord, I thank you for, thank you for laying out the cost of discipleship here in Luke 14. I ask that you just really instruct us, God. Help us to have our expectations calibrated correctly on what you say, Christ. Uh, help our, 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 our spines to stiffen, our resolve to settle. Help us to know exactly what it looks like following you. And we wouldn't be surprised or taken, you know, or distracted or just discouraged and feel defeated as these challenges come along that Christ highlights for his would-be followers. I said you'd encourage us and instruct us and convict us and open our eyes so we can see wonderful things in your word. If you don't show up, God, it is not worthwhile showing up here. We just love you and commit this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love the Dr. Luke who wrote this book, uh, Luke 14, page 510 in your house Bibles. I love Dr. Luke's uh, technicality as he goes through this passage. Uh, in verse 25, if you look with me, now great crowds accompanied him, Jesus, and he turned and said to them, and he jumps into a scathing reproach, it seems, a very brutal passage. Some of the most challenging things that Jesus said we're looking at this morning. And you see this rhythm. Jesus would preach and do miracles and more and more crowds would come. And then Jesus would raise the expectations as the crowds expect, as the crowds rose, the expectations rose. And Jesus goes and he goes right at it. That's just straight. Initially, let's just acknowledge that is different than what we see in American Christianity. The larger the church, the easier it is to go. I'm reminded of uh, the messaging and branding I've heard about some churches, and it reminds me of a gym here in town. Uh, zero entry fee, zero cancellation fee. If you like, you know, drop weights, people school, you know, judge you. Uh, there's like, you know, no judge-free zone. Uh, you know, it's 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 really doctored up. Like anyone can be here. And it's okay just to be here. And if, and if you're healthy or unhealthy, that's fine. We're just glad you're here. Uh, and if you stay unhealthy, that's fine. 
We're just glad you're here. You get what I'm saying? So I, I, I love how Jesus raises the bar as the crowds rise. He raises the standard. Uh, look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is laying out there's a cost. There's a relational cost is how I package this first liability of being a follower of Christ. It's like you're driving down the interstate on the highway to heaven and there's an exit ramp here. And it's like, get off here. If family and friends and relationships are going to matter to you more than Christ. And many people hit the, hit the blinker and get off on that, that exit. And it, you're like, hate my family. Preach it, pastor. I, I don't have good feelings about my family. That's easy for me. I, I don't. You should meet my family, Mike. This is, but the Jewish culture had this huge honor shame thing. It was a primary large Jewish audience, and it was incredibly important for these Jewish boys and Jewish girls to care for their father and their mother, their father-in-law and their mother-in-law. Honor and shame is incredibly honoring to take care of your parents, incredibly shameful to not take care of your family. And so Jesus went after the highest human loyalty they could have to their culture, to their country, and to their home family nucleus unit and said, if you love those people more than me, you cannot be my disciple. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus is saying, if you love those people more than me, you cannot be my disciple. Now, obviously the Bible's not saying hate your family. All throughout the Bible, there's all this strong family values. God created the family. He created uh, men and women and set up the institution of marriage, which is, which is a huge hallmark uh, institution in the Bible that is living throughout the whole Bible in our society today. Uh, it says, honor your father and mother. It says, Jesus got down and welcomed the kids to him. Um, Paul said, if a man does not provide for the needs of his family, he's denied the faith. It is worse than the unbeliever. Ephesians 4 and 5 say, respect and love and care for your spouse like God care for the church. Like husbands care for your wives like God care for the church. There's a high standard of family care and godliness in the home throughout the whole Bible. So Jesus is not saying hate. He's speaking in a hyperbole which is a shocking, jarring, memorable statement to just really kind of shake his large Jewish audience to think, are relationships going to be more important to me than following Christ? Family relationships in their context, just relationships in our context. If you were to take this passage and put a modern spin on it, it'd be like, if, you, if, you, uh, if anyone wants to come after me and does not hate his Instagram, his Facebook, his YouTube, his social media, his phone, his iPads, earbuds, uh, he cannot be my disciple. Our entertainment, self-centered American society. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, but the, the first exit, the first exit ramp seems to be a relational cost to following Christ. If you're going to follow Christ, there's a relational cost. Now, some of you, you might have grown up in the church. And mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, all your friends, they're Christians. So you, this doesn't relate to you. This relates to Old Testament Jew. I mean, this New Testament Jewish people. But it's like if all your Jewish friends are going this way, your people you party with, people you're hoping to get married with, your friends, your family, they're all going this way. And then you turn and you start to follow Christ as a Jewish person. There's relational offense you're stepping through. That, that, that matter. There's a relational cause and effect of following Christ for those people. People from the first service came to me afterwards and said, Mike, yeah, that relational cost of following Christ as the first convert in my family, that hurt. Tears in their eyes, emotions. It is a real thing when you're the first to turn and become converted and follow Christ in your family. There's a real cost because they didn't sign up for that. You're their son, you're their daughter, and it's like, that's not how I raised you. That's not what we value as a family. What are you doing? You've betrayed us. You've abandoned us. We're going this way and you're what? You're judging us? You're better than us? There's a relational cost in following Christ. 
Christ wants to highlight that for you as a follower. So you're not alarmed or taken back by the relational cost of following Christ. And no, he doesn't want you to hate, but he wants that your love for him to be so supreme that all other loves look like hates compared to your love and your loyalty to him. That's the first exit ramp. The second exit ramp is a personal cost to following Christ, a personal cost to following Christ. Um, the beginning of verse 26, if anyone does, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his family, relationships compared to his love for me, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not bear, bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There's a deep personal cost in following Christ. So initially, the first barrier, the first exit ramp you can take in not following Christ and being a disciple is relationships. The second barrier, the second exit ramp you can take is relationships with yourself. Because my life as a baby, my life as a kid, my life as a teenager, my life as a college person, very self-centered, vain, a world wrapped around me, and then my brain fully grew. And I decided to get married. And then I realized I had more sin and selfishness in my life. And then we had some kids and there's even more. And then it's like, as you grow older, it seems like people can follow more of their own desires, their selfishness, or they can become different. They can become more selfless. Christ says that your love and your loyalties to him has to be supreme even over your own desires, your own ambitions, your own selfish wants. You yourself are a barrier to following Christ. He says, pick up your cross and follow me, right? Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So a cross, it's jewelry we wear, it's tattoos we get. We don't realize what the cross was. You're like, yeah, it's that smooth tan thing at church that is over there on the south wall. The cross just then and now, the cross then, it was mainly viewed as the for this context, it was the top bar of the cross, and it was rougher, and they had to carry it with them up to where they were being crucified. And they were either tied to their cross, or they were nailed to their cross, and then they were suspended up above the ground where they slowly died from exposure, asphyxiation, uh, bleeding, and they slowly died on that cross. So pick up your cross and follow me. A modern equivalent is pick up your execution chair and follow me. That's dark, but the idea is a daily dying. So that's then, now, the idea of a cross for a Christian is taking my needs, my desires, my wants, my hopes, my dreams, and burying them in Christ so deeply that I want and I dream and I desire what Christ wants and dreams and desires for me. Christ is the only one that can give me hope for my life, but my whole life is defined by laying my life down, not picking my life up. I wake up in the morning and it's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about Christ. That's the call for all disciples, not just the uber Christian disciples. That's the cost of entrance for all disciples. And if we're honest, most Christians check out at door number one, exit number one of the interstate of following Christ. Exit number two of self really hits home. I know our culture loves me time taking care of myself, my comfort culture. Picking up your cross and following Christ is like poking the eye of the comfort culture Christian. I'm very aware of that. My house has blankets because we're cheap and keep it really cold. My kids wake up and they grab their blanket, they eat their cereal because mom and I are cheap and we, we don't keep our house really warm. But 
I know there's this comfort culture in my kids, in myself, and it just grows. You feed your comfort, it just keeps growing and growing. But the cost of admission for discipleship of Jesus Christ is to pick up your cross, suffer, bleed, be ashamed and humiliated like Christ, and die. That's the expectations Christ is paying for us, that personal cost of following Christ. And if you're like me, you're at this part of the passage, you're like, this is heavy, this is hard. How do you do that? This is depressing. Why did I come? I should have stayed online and watched at home like the other people. I could turn it off, you know? <laughs> Just kidding. We love you, Christians that are online. But there is no chance in the world you can accomplish this on your own. You have to have something happen in your life to be able to live out real authentic discipleship, really following Christ. You have to have something called a new life, a regenerate, re rebirth in your life. Your soul has to be born again. You have to be a real follower of Christ. The old you died and the new you is alive and the new you is living on the power of the Spirit. That makes you even want to do this. Verse 28, Jesus pauses and jumps into some illustrations. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost about whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation is not able to finish all Finish all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So it's like you're driving along on the interstate to heaven, and you see buildings that aren't completed. In Lincoln, we have a lot of buildings that are getting torn down and rebuilt, but we don't have a lot of half-built buildings in our city. I saw a bunch of half-built skyscrapers when 30-some of us went to Dominican Republic for a Spring Break mission trip a couple years ago, and it was wild. And everyone knew the stories of those people's skyscrapers. The bottom floor, like homeless people were using. And then the second story on up was just empty concrete and steel. And there was no windows, no glass, just a skeleton of a building. And they all knew this guy got embezzled in government, government money, got in trouble. And this guy had a divorce and his wife took his money, couldn't afford to finish these things. They all knew, or they're making up stories of the sad stories of those business people and why they didn't finish their high tower sky rise thing. The world walks by and sees a Christian that started out, builds a skeleton of Christianity and then just checks out and quits because they didn't count the cost and they know the backstory. Johnny Christian became a Christian, didn't have a lot of family relational ties, but he was not able to conquer himself and he checked out. And then the last point we're getting to, the world knows and they see a Christian that didn't quite get the job complete that didn't build his house and his life completely and totally and count the cost ahead of time. And then Jesus goes on to another illustration here. Verse 31, Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet, to meet him who has 20,000? And if not, while, they, while the other is yet a great way off to send a delegation and ask for terms of peace, so therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. In biblical battles, back in the day, it was total war or total surrender. And you had to make that decision early on. And you had to hire mercenaries and get a real big battle plan and, and beef up your armies because a two-to-one ratio was a, basically a chance you're going to lose. So you had to make some decisions. Either you surrender, and they don't completely come and occupy and take over your country, or you go and find mercenaries to beef up your numbers. Uh, two for one odds were bad odds in the Bible days. But these are like obvious things where you can't have half measures. You do it or you don't do it. You build the tower or you don't build the tower. You win the battle or you lose the battle and you lose everything. 
That's what our discipleship should look like in our mind's eyes. As we're going along, Jesus says, count the cost personally, relationally, count the cost. Relationally and personally, count the cost. Don't be like the tower. Don't be like the person who started out and got taken apart by war. But look at verse 33. There's a third principle of things that take people out, a third exit ramp there in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. All that he has is a wealth thing. Wealth. So I'm just going to say finance in our context. But they gave wealth. The early church began with wealth. The book of Acts is filled with crazy generous stories of people giving all that they had. Finances. Your finances is a barrier to following Christ. Your finances is a barrier of your discipleship. So let's review. There's a relational cost. There's a personal cost. And there's a financial cost of following Christ, Christian. There's a financial cost. We have many members that are very generous and very a correct biblical perspective on what God talks about generosity. I'm very grateful for you. All of us pastors are very grateful for you. It's amazing what we can do and we have done because of your generosity. There's many people that are counting the cost on what it means to be a member. I'm saying this to you. There's a cost of following Christ in your finances. We talk about your time, your talent, your treasure. But Christ was all in on his finances. He was born poor. He was raised poor. He grew up in a very poor region of Nazareth where everyone knew those people had a drawl and they sounded poor. He wasn't educated fancy. He surrounded himself with a very not you know, affluent disciples. He died a pitiless preacher, like those poetic people dramatically say. And all of his early apostles, all 11 of them, went around the whole entire known world and they died the same death. Persecuted, suffering, martyred, and they all died poor. Christianity is at its best when people have a correct, correct, correct grasp on money. Christianity is at its worst when, when finances and money is abused. That is a thing in American Christianity. That is a thing on the global Christian, Christian world. Where different people groups are, were, are, are using Christianity to weaponize, to take finances from different people groups. That is wrong. That is evil. If the pastor you know and love is worth $100 million, you're probably listening to a pastor who doesn't have verse 33 in his Bible who doesn't have this chapter 14 in his Bible. Therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Exit ramp of finances, exit ramp of your, yourself, and exit ramp of your relationships. All three of those are serious liabilities, serious costs you have to evaluate when following Christ. Christ knew what was going to come from all the followers, and Christ was the perfect disciple who perfectly modeled all of these things for us. Think of Christ, his relationships. He had family and friends think he was losing his mind. They send a delegation of his siblings to go get him when his ministry was taking off saying, he's lost his mind. Go get your brother Jesus and bring him back here. He's embarrassing us, shame, on our family. He's dishonoring us. Go get him and bring him back here. We already have a scandal of our family. Go get him and bring that kid back. He had that scandal of relational cost he had to pay to follow God's will for his life. Moving on, Christ suffered more personally than any person that's ever existed on this planet. He suffered for you, but he suffered and modeled for us a perfect disciple of laying down his rights and his life and suffering through obedience so that you and I might have a faith in God. Christ modeled perfect obedience in his personal walk of God. And then Christ, obviously, like I just said, was not a health and wealth, prosperity, best life now preacher. You get what I'm saying? Men and women, 
It is a sobering thing that Christ said. And these are some of the most difficult, challenging passages in the Bible, scholars say. But it is a sobering, difficult thing that Christ lived for us and he modeled for us and his disciples modeled for us. Let's, let's look at these last few verses. 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, neither for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you think of Christians who start out strong on that road to God of discipleship, and then they, they lose their saltiness. Well, let's stop, let's stop, let's back up. The, the context of salt back in that day, you're like, salt, Mike, I have table salt. And then there's that thing called salt that I'm supposed to put out on my sidewalks, and I never remember until my neighbor does it for me. Like, there's a bucket of salt out there that we spread on the sidewalks in the parking area so that you don't fall. And you're like, that salt, if you put that salt on your hamburger this afternoon, you get really sick because that salt is like saturated with like chemicals and compounds to make it not table salt, but it's like, don't let stuff freeze salt. So I get what I'm saying. There's, but in that day and age, they had salt that lost its, its purity. It lost its, its potency. It had other things mixed into it and it didn't taste like salt. It tastes like someone doctored up their salt pile to get a little bit more salt price out of stuff to preserve meats and whatnot. And if it's like, it, uh, it looks like salt, it doesn't taste like salt, and it doesn't have the chemical compounds of salt, this is worthless. Let's throw it out, let's throw it in the manure pile, or just get rid of this thing. To fight weeds, or just get rid of this thing. To keep, it's not, we can't use this. Our meat will spoil, we'll get sick. They added limestone or something to the salt. So that's the historical context of salt, because we don't worry about our table salt. Get what I'm saying? So back to the passage. Salt is good, but if it's lost its saltiness, how shall its saltiness be restored? So Jesus just talked about discipleship and the cost of discipleship. He talked about the relational cost, the personal cost, and the financial cost of being a disciple. So think of Christians you know, maybe yourself, who you're good in one of these areas, but you've lost your saltiness in another area. You're like, I'm good at neglecting all other relationships, just me and you, Jesus. I don't like people anyway, it's just me and you, Jesus. That's fine, that's fine. But me time, God, that's king time. And I'm the king of that time, not you, God. I'm the king of that time. Oh, and money, I'll give a little bit of money. But don't make me hang out those Christians. Two out of three, two out of three is not Jesus' standard of discipleship. Two out of three, one out of three. Get what I'm saying? The goal is three out of three, Christians. And if you see Christians that are bad representation of Christ and Christianity, that are those half-built towers, those kings that go to war and just get destroyed, that they tend to get taken out in one of these three areas. The world, when the world... When you look at salt, it tastes like salt. When the world looks at Christianity, you should look, taste, feel, and sound like Christ. And if you don't look, taste, feel, and sound like Christ, you might not be in Christ. The Bible says, the Bible says broad is the road and many are on it that leads to hell. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus said at the end of that Sermon on the Mount, he said, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He like warned his people that I... There's many that will say they did this, this, and this in my name, and I'll say, depart from them, you evil, wicked servant. I never knew you. All over Lincoln, people get up and go to church, but yet broad is the road, and many are on it that lead to hell. Are you a real Christian? I'm serious. The real Christianity is spelled and flushed out in this cost of discipleship. Relational, personal, financial. Not that you're earning your salvation through giving or hanging out with people or, you know, having a disciplined life. Not that. You know that. You've heard us preach before. We don't say that at this church. But men and women, 
Salt is good, but you've lost your saltiness. How shall, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no good either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is to be thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. Ken Hughes has a great quote. He says, the entrance of Christianity is free, but the annual subscription is astronomical. Cost of becoming a Christian is free by God's sacrifice, by Jesus' sacrifice. But the annual prescription, subscription of being a Christian, it costs you things, brother and sister. We should celebrate that, that generosity of ourselves, generosity of our relationships, generosity of our finances, because at the end game, at the end of the road, we know we're not just going to heaven. We know there's more than that. We're rewarded for every cup of cold water we give away, everything we do. We're rewarded generously by the God who made everything. The God who made this entire cosmos and universe is there to reward us generously. We are living not for this life, but for that next life. God will open our eyes eventually, and you will see what you live for. Jesus is presenting this cost of discipleship so you know exactly what you're getting into, and your eyes can be opened today to see the game that's played for the hearts and souls of mankind all over this city and all of this nation. He who has ears, let him hear. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, I was, in, I was encouraged by the way some scholars wrapped up this passage. Who can ask for all of your relationships, all of yourself, and all of your finances? Who could ask for those three things? And then they quoted Deuteronomy 6.5 that says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be the perfect Son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. If you are lost, you Christ desires to find you this morning. He didn't lose you. You lost him. Christ desires that you might know him and come back to him. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you don't know about the deity of Christ who lived and died on a cross. You don't know any of that stuff. We have tons of resources, tons of people, tons of time we'll give you to spend if you help you understand and connect those dots and just sort through this. There's podcasts, there's YouTube channels, there's websites. There's so much defense of the faith of Christ came, he lived and he died and he, he rose from the grave. Like that is like the hallmark cornerstone gold standard of Christianity that Christ rose from the grave. Christ lived, he died and he rose again. He's God. His signs and miracles and wonders, he did all those three years of ministry leading up to his death, burial and resurrection, prove that he's God. The God of the universe says the cost of discipleship is your relationships, yourself, and your finances. God can ask that. If you don't know Christ, know Christ today. Start that conversation with people here today. Many of us have been having convos with you and would love to continue to have conversations with you about who this God Jesus man is. If you're, if you're a member or you're been following Christ and this is not crazy new that I just shared with you this morning, there's... Paul talking to the church, he says, it's good for me to remind you of things. It's good to endure well and be reminded of truths that I can grab the wheel and start to drift to the relationship so I can drift to my personal me time or I can drift to my finances. It's good to have a recorrection. That's good for my soul, good for your soul. If you're a baby Christian and you're like, I was this way when I got called by God, I want to stay this way until Jesus comes back. I would warn you, is that Christianity that you subscribe to? Fire insurance, Christianity, if no fruit in your life, I would not want to live that life and stand before a holy and just God on judgment day where I have to give an account for every thought, word, and deed I've ever done. Can we pray? And we're going to close of communion.
Uh, let's, let's pray. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for these men and women. I thank you for what you're doing in their lives. You're busy and active in their lives. You have a plan. You're executing your plan. I ask that you just encourage us, Lord. Thank you that there is hope and encouragement in the work of Christ. Christ lived the perfect discipleship life and modeled the way and plowed the way and, and will pay the way for us to follow you. We all have and will mess up in these three areas, God. The goal is not that we never mess up. The goal is that we look to the one who knows how to fix our mistakes. I think that there's hope in Christ. We love you and just commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen.